Welcome to the Future of Insurance Industry Leaders Podcast. I'm Denise Garth, Chief Strategy Officer at Majesco. If you're interested in the latest industry trends and new technologies that are reshaping the future of insurance, you're in the right place. Stick around to hear my discussions with industry leaders as we help uncover today's emerging opportunities for the future of insurance. Welcome everybody to our podcast series, Insurance Industry Influencers. And I'm really pleased today to welcome back Brian Falchuk. Um, he's the author of the recently released Future of Insurance Part 2 book. Brian and I had a great conversation the last time on his first edition, Part 1, and we're going to have a deeper dive into this book today. So welcome, Brian. Thank you very much for having me back on, Denise. Brian, just give a quick background once again for the audience on yourself, and then why did you write this sequel to the Future of Insurance, From Disruption to Evolution, The Startups? I'm a PNC vet. I've been in the space for just over 20 years, mostly on the carrier side, spent some time at McKinsey. And then after running claims for Hiscox for the US business, I went to an insure tech and spent a year doing sales there, which basically meant I traveled all over talking to lots of different carriers about what they were facing. And it was kind of like early rumblings of customer experience demands starting to change pre-pandemic. It just gave me this really interesting perspective, having lived on kind of both sides of that equation with the carrier and the insure tech experience. And I felt like I needed to try to help the industry break through, you know, a lot of the the kind of barriers that we face so that we can change more. And that's, you know, that's what led to the first book, which is all legacy carriers. But one of the major kind of uh, disruptive forces out there in the first book that I talked about was the startups. You know, they're free from all of this legacy stuff. And so they have it so easy, right? And they can just do whatever. And that's not fair. Well, I felt like I need to round out this story and tell the other side of the coin. And the reality is, and I say this, uh, I, I overuse this phrase, but the grass isn't green anywhere unless you garden. So there's complications and constraints on the startup side too. And there's lots of things that they would look across the fence and see the incumbents and say, well, they have it so easy because they have this and they have that. We don't have any of those benefits. So the truth is like everyone has things they struggle with, whether you're an incumbent or a startup or watching incumbents and startups. And so the lessons that we can take from, you know, digging into these stories actually is really valuable for anyone in the industry. And so I wanted to dig into that. And that's what led me down the path of when I thought I would still be kind of relaxing from writing the first book and not rushing to write another one. It was one of these, like, I really have to do this moments. I was just very lucky to have a number of startups who were really open and honest about their journeys, the ups and downs, and they shared, you know, pretty openly with me. And, and I think it, it led to something really rich and valuable. And, you know, I think one of the things you talked about in your book is how COVID really made digital transformation a mandate for survival and an imperative for everybody. I can't agree with you more because I think that what we've seen in our research and that we just published this year, the strategic priorities, we saw a growing gap between leaders and what we call followers and laggards. And in particular with laggards that in many cases, the gap, as you look out three years is so uh, drastic, it's 103% gap. Wow. that the laggers are probably in a downward spiral and they don't even realize it. So survival yeah. is truly that. So talk about what you meant and how you think COVID became that inflection point and what that means for insurers over the next three to five years. It's really interesting to me. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with people in all three camps. And to me, I think the most adamant are the laggards actually, not 
not even realizing they're in that camp and also justifying being there. And I think what COVID did was, I don't think anyone said like, oh, we, you know, we don't need to do anything. We're, we're totally fine. And even though all everything we do is in person, we're not going to change any of it and we'll just wait. Actually, I did talk to one carrier that was doing that several months on and when their new business was still at zero from March to August, they were finally like, well, maybe we do need to change something. But, you know, eventually everyone got some form of religion around, you know, at least some level of digital interactions and remote work and that kind of thing. I'm really taken aback by folks who coming out of this, it didn't flip a switch for them. So for most carriers, it was like, okay, we get it. You know, we really do need to change. And actually look at what we just pulled off in very short order. That's probably the coolest conversations I've had is the people who are like, whoa, we're, we're actually really capable of changing and changing rapidly. You know, tons of carriers enabled remote work literally in, in a day or two, mm-hmm. where, you know, a few I had talked to that had tens of thousands of employees were talking about it being a nine to 18 month journey they were gonna start in a year. And, you know, five days after their first, first lockdown order, uh, they were fully remote. So clearly, you know, we can do things. And so I saw a number of carriers kind of come alive and say, all right, the train has left the station, we're moving. But there's others who have sort of said, and you know, this is in that laggard bucket, we, we changed, we're good. It's all, we're all set now. And it's just like, that's, that's not what's happened. I really think there's been a, a kind of tectonic shift here where some, the vast majority understand change is, is the regular now and the speed of these things is really amplified. And you cannot simply say, well, we did a bunch of change that time before, we're good, we're all changed. We're ever changed. We're constantly changing. But so this notion of like, we put in a new core system. And so, you know, that's going to last us for 20 years and we'll be good to go. And well, look, maybe it, you know, in some respects it will be, but it's not going to look anything like it did, you know, at the start of that journey because of all the tools that you've, you've added onto it through APIs, the way it's evolved and all that. But this notion that like, you know, we put in a core system in 1965. And so now the year 2000 is hitting. So we're going to do something about it. That was a really common conversation. You cannot be thinking that way. You need things that are flexible and will continue to evolve because that's the pace of every industry, not just ours. And it's just table stakes. You, we don't, insurance doesn't get a, a pass anymore. We can't just be behind and people are like, well, it's my insurer. What can I do about it? There's too many options that aren't like that now. Yeah, exactly. One of the interesting things that when COVID hit and, you know, we shut down for a period of time and so many businesses shut down and, you know, we were very much concerned about a financial crisis because, you know, the business environment really slowed down. I think everybody thought, oh, this is the end of InsureTech. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was maybe just a month or two pause, but man, uh, investment has continued at a rapid pace. Mergers and acquisitions are going. Yeah. And it's accelerated, you know, with new funding announcements, the IPOs, the new facts, partnerships, yeah. M&A. Yeah. I mean, across the board with MGAs and brokers and insurers and tech companies. Why do you think the industry thrived during this time? And why do you think in some ways it's accelerated? And what are the implications for those that are just kind of standing still and looking at all pass them by? Well, I think it's so not to get into the book yet, but there's eight companies in there. Seven of the eight actually made it really hard to call their case study and their their chapter done because every time I was like, okay, I finished this one, some <laughs> new press release came out. I mean, literally, it was like they just raised $300 million. How do I not talk about that? 
in a book that, you know, so it's like, it's impossible to write about startups, especially in this space, because that rate of investment and change and growth and major partnerships, it's astronomical. And I agree, like come March, it was like, woo, who's not going to exist in six weeks? Who is like, if we don't get this investment, we die. And so we're done, you know, give back whatever money we have and tell our employees we're so sorry. I don't think any of us in March of 2020 foresaw what ended up happening, which is just wild levels of investment. And to your question of why, I think there's a few things, but one really is, and, and you keep hearing this about the way that the pandemic and the lockdowns and the need for digital really like on the order of a decade, accelerated digital transformation, accelerated e-commerce, not just from the company side, which is what we're focusing on, but from a consumer side, you know, that people may not have been comfortable with walking around their damaged property with their house or their car or whatever with their phone and, and submitting things that way. All of a sudden it wasn't just like, well, I'm not sure, or I'm a little comfortable with it. Now it's like, I don't want you coming to my house. I want to like, how can I do this myself? I don't, I can't be around a person. And granted, you know, for some people they got over that after a few months, but enough things in our life have moved that way. And then we realized, well, that was so much easier. And why would I want to do it any other way? And, you know, last time I had a car accident, it was like weeks and I had to wait for the tow truck and then an appraiser and I couldn't get a hold of them and all these, like, I could just wave my phone around and I'm done. And someone cuts me a check. You know, you, you start to think about that and you see the way that everything else moved, that so many things were done. You know, people started to get groceries either picked for them and they just drive up and an employee drops them in their car or they get them delivered. People would never have done that before. A lot changed. And so if your business is from the ground up, built digital native, built e-commerce, built for partnerships, built for claims that are handled differently, you know, maybe not entirely remotely and digitally and AI and all that, but it's more baked into the process. That becomes a very attractive prospect to an investor who's looking at where do I think this industry is going to go? You know, there was so much investment across so many companies. I think you could look as an outsider or, or maybe an incumbent and say, this is all hubris. It's a bubble and it's stupid. And, but the way that investment works is not every one of those investments is going to be a rock star. You know, it's a portfolio approach. So yeah, there were a lot of bets placed. Um, I think it amplified because I think the story changed a lot in terms of the clarity around each of those opportunities. But I don't know that all of them is going to win, but it's a very interesting thing how it's suddenly amplified. And then the question is, and I get this having been at a, in an incumbent that has a piece of the business that is very forward thinking and really an early mover in the direct world and commercial is like, well, you have these really successful what would be called an insure tech solution if it wasn't within an incumbent. And then you look at the valuation of that incumbent versus this startup who's so much smaller and the startup's worth more. How does that figure out? And, you know, so a lot of questions of like, well, how do we unlock the kind of insure tech valuation that's trapped within an incumbent who's maybe being unfairly valued? I don't know if it's fair or unfair, but it's a really interesting kind of spot that the industry's in with in terms of you know access to capital and valuation when you compare that to business fundamentals some things are just weird right now but i think it is it's really fascinating to watch yeah and let's let's kind of dive into that a little bit more because in your book you did talk about that capital access yeah whether you know that's investment capital or the capital provided by capacity you know back in a new startup 
And the dynamics between growth and loss performance do seem to have a disconnect between, you know, the startup market and the incumbents. In fact, you know, I remember speaking ahead of individual who is a C-level individual for a traditional incumbent insurer a, number, a couple of years ago, and they were basically poo-pooing one of the startups saying, oh, their loss ratios are so bad and, you know, they're going to collapse, et cetera. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, you really don't understand their business model that they actually had planned to have losses, but they're leveraging technology and AI and machine learning and data to become smarter Every time they have a loss, they they refine those models. They're going to come out of this much differently than you think. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that you kind of pointed out. You know that those that think oh this too shall pass are really deceiving themselves. They've really got their heads in the sand. Yeah, talk about your perspective after talking to all these startups. I think one of the problems is there are some that is the case. Like there isn't a real reason why they get to exist. You know they don't have a material advantage. They're just another player and they're kind of like good at marketing and a little bit cheeky and they're, you know, their price is lower and like, that's fine, but their losses don't make sense. Their business fundamentals don't make sense. And the problem is you look at that and then that gives fodder to the people who are saying like, oh, this is a flash in the pan. They're all junk. You know, talk to me in 20 years or five years or some will say like, talk to me next year when they don't exist. They're only here because of overzealous investors. There are examples like that, which by the way, there are examples like that in every single industry. Let's not forget, someone gave me a really fun exercise of like, name all the websites you used in 2000 and see which ones you're still using today. And in 2000, I would have said, well, let me go to Alta Vista and search for some of these companies. So that like, you know, that's how we want to start. Obviously, Alta Vista is not around today and Google didn't exist then. So, you know, you look around and there are a number of insure techs who I think are unfairly bunched into that, like, oh, this is just a flash in the pan. That's where I was really lucky to take a different approach that I got the time to actually dig in. And to be fair, there's eight companies in the book. There's more companies that I looked at, you know, not all of them made it because either, you know, for one, uh, they weren't able to talk because they had a financial transaction going on or going, going public. And so they couldn't do the book and that's, you know, that's understandable. But for a couple others, after doing an initial call with the founder or the CEO, it was like, I don't know that this is a real thing and that this isn't one of those flashes in the pan. I don't know. There's hubris in a lot of their story. And that's not a lesson to me in terms of you should just be arrogant or conceited or um, cocky. And that's how you win. I wanted stories that people were going to be really honest and they had ups and downs. And there's a genuine reason why that particular business model in that company actually could have legs. And let's be fair, any carrier, startup or incumbent, if you have a new business, you start a new line, you go into a new geography, it's going to be a dog for quite some time until it reaches maturity. So we can't just say, oh, they're losing money. Well, yeah, what happened when you started line of business X that's all mature now? It was terrible for many years, wasn't it? Because it was too small to support its losses and you were investing in it and all those sorts of things. So we can't just say, because the losses aren't acceptable, it must be bad. You have to look beyond that and think long-term, is there a maturity story in there? While their economics might suggest, you know, at this threshold, the numbers work out, then you have to ask, well, does their business strategy even lead to that threshold? Like, could they grow there? Or are there other things that like, you know what, they're only here because they had this one windfall or it was really catchy, the marketing or the pricing, whatever. And they've actually struggled. If you look at their growth, they're really struggling to break through. I think that's where it takes 
a keener eye to pick apart some of the strategy and see who are the ones that, yeah, there may be some hype, but there's something very real there and you could see why they get to exist. And who are the others that is interesting and there's definitely something to take from it, but I'm not sure I've figured out why is that a winning strategy? I think that's kind of the way we need to look at it, which is not a blind like, oh, it's new, it's just hype, or they spell their name funny and they have a cool looking website, not interested, they won't be here next year. That's way too simplistic. Yeah, very much so. And you know, one of the other trends that you also talk about and that we're seeing in the industry is the dramatic growth in MGAs. You know, they're often backed by uh, capital behind, you know, maybe some reinsurers or other insurers or, you know, other organizations. Now we're seeing more of those moving to full stack insurers, which is really interesting. What do you see as the challenges for those taking this path and for incumbent insurers not attuned to these new competitors? Well, it's really funny. When I was coming up in the industry, an MGA was like, it was just a a broker with a pen and an interesting (laughs) um, distribution strategy. Like they had market access to some, you know, some groups, some affinity. And now I feel like, why did I even have to start with the story of what an MGA used to be? Now it's it's a mechanism for, it's almost like the proof of concept for turning into a carrier without needing the capital. If you're taking outside funding, it's very expensive to ask an investor to hand over tens of millions of dollars to just sit and do nothing because that's effectively what statutory capital is. It's a pool of capital for you know a rainy day that you hope you don't need, but you can't invest it all that aggressively. It's not funding you know new systems or people or any of that. It's parked capital that supports your filings and you know your licenses so uh, and ultimately your writings but that's very expensive so t- to go out and raise money to operate is one thing you can tell a business story but to tell an investor like give me 50 million dollars and it's going to get like a one percent return you're gonna have to give up 300 percent of your company <laughs> to to afford that which isn't an option so the MGA model lets you start the business and prove the underwriting, the model, the systems, the people, the market access and all that without having to go through the statutory capital side. And then when you go to raise money after you've proven your model, you get a much better valuation. So you can then start to support some form of investment. And it's usually a debt, debt instrument is how they tend to do it to start to prop up your capital base so you can actually create your own carrier, which long term, the economics are better to be a carrier than to be just an MGA because you have all the upside that you don't have as an MGA and you're not, you know, paying fees for things that you can, you're effectively doing yourself, but you have to pay a fronting fee and you're paying your reinsurers. You're probably reinsuring more than you would otherwise. So, you know, it gets to be more unit economic wise, it gets to be more expensive, but you've proven your case. And that has become the, the model du jour for a lot of these folks and not Everyone in the book either is or has been an MGA with one exception in the, there's one health insurance there, but everyone else, they went through that path. And there's two, I think, three that are still MGAs. And then one of them, like Next Insurance still has their MGA and they still use it, but they're, you know, they're also a full stack carrier. It's it's interesting. It, It allows you to do things kind of lower risk, lower cost get to the next level of valuation so that you're retaining more ownership of the company instead of you know basically selling the whole thing just to fund this pot of parked capital which is a it's not a great story to tell of the eight startups you review in your book who stands out as potentially being a billion plus dwp player in the short term and then my second question to that is 
who could kind of emerge as a top 10 insurer in the long term? Remember when Progressive started and everybody kind of poo-pooed them about the, yeah. the claims vans driving around and everybody didn't really take them seriously. Well, the herbs, yeah, exactly. Well, Denise, when I started in the industry, we were actually, maybe it was a strong, too strong a word for it, but we were on a bit of a death watch for Progressive because their losses were really problematic. Yeah. And, and Geico didn't even have cute ads yet. Everything's changed. And then again, like I started Liberty Mutual, we were about 12 billion when I joined and now they're pushing 40 billion. So everything changes. Good question. I think of all of them, next insurance is probably the easiest to say like, there's two answers. One, Clover Health is, uh, they're just about a billion anyway. That's a little bit cheating for me because they're like, I think 900 million or so. So they're almost there. And Next is, is just over 400 at this point. Next is worth 4 billion. So yep. uh, if you're going to say on valuation, that's a different story. I think Next stands the best chance of the PNC carriers of getting there. Frankly, like they're the furthest along, but their business model, I'm a little bit biased because they're in the same space that I was in. And so I understand it and I know what the opportunities are. I think their business model is really strong. Their recent acquisitions are really good moves. I would bet on next getting to a billion in premium, probably first of the rest of the cohort in there. Who's going to be a top 10? I don't know. And I hope none of them is offended by this. I don't know that any of them will be, or if any of them care, I'm not sure that that's how they're really thinking about it. I think what would be interesting is who gets bought by a top 10 or a top 15 or whatever. And I think that's a possibility for many of them, any startup. And for the incumbents, there are several that Chubb just tried to buy the Hartford for many times more than what any of these companies would cost. Chubb or Travelers or State Farm or you know whoever, a potential buyer of many of these companies. Yeah. Whether they would or wouldn't, I'm not sure. Just acquired Noble. Yeah. Yeah. Nobler just got bought out. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know which way it could go. And then the question is like, do you buy something like Neptune Flood? Do you buy that to round out your portfolio further and you know provide more coverage for your existing customers and, and obviously potentially others? Or you know, if, if your homeowner's carrier, does, does someone like Kin sound more interesting that's doing homeowners also and just doing it a bit differently? And so then it's like, is that an, a way for us to innovate in one of our core products? two very different reasons to buy, you know, kind of similar size companies. So yeah, that's, I don't know, it's tough to say. And I think whatever I end up throwing out there is probably going to be wrong. So then, because <laughs> it's, Look it does feel like the industry has been wrong. Yeah, no, I know. It does feel like it's not quite the wild west, but there's so much moving. It's really hard to tell. And I could see all of them actually standing on their own two feet because they do have genuine reasons to be and their economic models like beam is is the furthest along in that regard uh, that's the dental provider they're writing at a better loss ratio than the industry that's really impressive so they're about 10 points ahead of the industry on the loss ratio side in an industry that no one makes money in so granted the bar is not very high but it's hard to figure out how to be profitable there and they have this really awesome flywheels of getting better underwriting results, which lead to lower prices, which with their data and their tools, they can then drive better underwriting results to drive prices. But it's really cool to watch. Absolutely. So who stands out as redefining the insurance product and delivering a new customer experience and why? 
So I think they all do in different ways. The one that actually I think is the has the potential to most profoundly change their space is Clover Health. It's a little bit tricky because if anyone Googles them, no doubt you will catch the meme stock side of it more so than the actual business. So I just ask you, ignore that stuff and look into what they're actually doing. There's no doubt healthcare is very much broken in this country. We spend more than any other country in aggregate or per person, and we do not have the best health outcomes. So that's not good value. And they're seeking to change that. And they're using some really interesting artificial intelligence that they're putting in the hands of doctors. And surprisingly, it's being adopted. Uh, you know, there's lots of health tech out there and doctors haven't really embraced it. And I think one of the things that they've recognized is as the payer, that gives them power to try to change the paradigm, not by forcing doctors, which is the way that health insurance has generally worked. If you want to get reimbursed, you have to do these things. Instead, they've said, we want you to use these tools. We recognize it's more for you. So we're going to pay you more for using them. So if it adds five minutes to your average visit, we will reimburse you at a higher rate because we recognize you're giving more of yourself to do that. That's never been done. Usually it's like, we're, we're just going to, we're going to pay you less and you're going to deal with it, which doesn't really set up the right, the right kind of paradigm. So I like from a values and a, an intention standpoint, I like what they're trying to do. And I like the way that they're going about it. It's going to be a long time before that has a systemic impact on healthcare outcomes. God, that is something we need. And that's a nice reminder of insurance being a force for good in the economy and the health and wellness of the entire country, not just the financial sector. So that one really stands out to me. And it's it's a shame that there's really the only news about them is what their share price and the story around their SPAC. Really brilliant and purposeful existence. Branch on the PNC side is, is another one that stands out to me, which is a little bit harder to understand why it's different. But if you've ever had to deal with multiple capital pots across different lines of business, you start, like I go into some detail there, you start to understand having lived with that constraint, and I, I've, I've had to, that's actually a tremendous unlock that I think a lot of people don't get. Um, so I'm watching that, and I think that has the power to change the entire way capital is allocated in PNC. So I really hope that they're successful. The last time we saw something like that was in the 1950s and literally nothing has changed at that scale since then. So I'm hopeful that branch is really successful because that could push a complete change in our whole capital model and bring prices down, bring coverage up, allow more flexibility in what we're doing, which is pretty oh. cool. Yeah. Which is really needed. Yeah. No pressure so, on the branch team, by the way, to change everything, but yeah, I know they're trying anyway. Yeah. So when you look at channels and market reach, who does it really interestingly and how does that power kind of fuel their growth? I mean, what I would say more broadly is uh, to start is like so many startups come out with this, like we're going to be direct because agents and brokers, it's a dying channel. Everything's <laughs> digital now. Oh, and what a waste of money. You're paying a commission. Like, well, don't you know about the internet? Like well, one click and you just buy the policy and you're done. And then, I mean, you look around and almost every single, um, you know, like brand name and sure tech <laughs> carrier that's out there has been like, oh my God, this is hard and expensive. Um, we're now going to start to appoint agents. We love the channel. And it's like, wait, I thought you just said it was the worst thing ever. And it's so expensive. 
that's a bit of a wake-up call is acquisition and insurance is really really hard and it's not free if you're not paying commission you have to advertise and you have to get the clicks going and like it is incredibly expensive i think a number of them recognize that pretty early on or that was baked in from the start so you know being multi-channel usually is the right path not everyone does that i think from a distribution standpoint uh clear cover they're not exclusively an embedded play but that is a really core part of their approach you can't do any conference or webinar these days in this industry without embedded being thrown around so that is a really big deal but i think that's it's a really interesting thing if you think about it if if you have an embedded solution so you're part of the the asset someone wanted to insure if you're just part of the sale process there and you're you're nicely smoothly built into that there isn't really a conscious thought of going and shopping for insurance. Generally, we'll just take your offer and you can usually do it for a better price and a better coverage because you know more and your costs of delivery are lower. So it's a more attractive offer to begin with. That means you don't have any competition in your sale. You know, one of the things, Brian, I think that you're getting to here is that many of these startups think that they're gonna start one way and they end up going into a multi-channel world. In fact, I just yes. created this chart and I was taking a number of different startups. And if you think about the direct to consumer, then you've got the agent broker, you've got, you're partnering with other insurers that you're providing a product that that insurer might not be able to offer. And even being dental is partnering with somebody who provides the vision uh, product. Yeah, VSP. Yep. Yeah. And then you've got exchanges, you know, like a bull penguin as an example. Yep. Yep. And then you've got the embedded and I leveraged off of uh, what Caribou recently said it was soft, embedded, hard, embedded, and invisible. Invisible. Yeah. You, you know, you've got this invisible where you don't even know you're buying the insurance. It's just yeah. automatic to a direct to consumer that they're, they're purposely going out to buy it. Yeah. And you've got everything in between. And, and when you think about it, the number of channels that, that are growing and the partnerships to support those channels it's really about meeting the customer where and when on their terms. And yeah. for anybody to be successful in the future, you're going to have to play in a multi-channel world. Yeah. And it may mean you're playing with a competitor and that's yeah. in the, the thimble stories. You know, I mentioned I was at Hiscox. We were trying to solve for this episodic, like gig economy nature of turning coverage on and off. And we just couldn't, you know, our product couldn't do it. Our system couldn't do it. So we were canceling and rewriting, which is what most carriers will do whether you know it or not, you know, someone who has like a, a convertible that they only use in the summer, they're probably canceling coverage for all those other months of the year, or they're at least stripping it back. You know, they're, they're getting rid of like the comprehensive or the collision or whatever. That's really expensive. It's not a good customer experience. And what it means is if they're canceling and they, you better hope they come back to you when they need to start coverage again. Otherwise, like they're just going to shop every time. So you want the ability to switch on and switch off so that they're not shopping and going to a competitor each time they need coverage again. We couldn't solve for it anytime soon, but we were working on it. But still, it was going to be years. In walks Thimble, who that is exactly what they do. So, if, you know, if you're if you're a traditional mindset at Hiscox, which they're not, but if you were, you'd look at it and say, like, these guys are the enemy. We hate them. We don't want anything to do with them. We got to put them out of business. Like, what are we going to do? We get, let's pour more money into trying to solve for this because we have to kill these guys. No, instead, Hiscox is like, look, we can't solve for this just yet. We have a lot of priorities. This is one of them, but this can't be the only thing we do. So we need another story. And if our options are stay adamant, don't solve for it, you know, because we can't right now, 
lose the customer to Thimble potentially, or maybe partner with Thimble and sell their coverage. Yeah, Thimble's getting the sale. We take a small piece of it, you know, we get a, a commission on it, but at least we get to still have a relationship with that customer instead of having them walk out the door and go to Thimble on their own or somewhere else. So it's recognizing if we can't meet your needs, what can we do so that we get to still stay relevant? Because at some point we hope to be able to meet your needs again. That's a really humble, honest, and frankly, very strategic way to look at it. And so kudos to Thimble and Hiscox for recognizing like we may be competitors on paper, but that doesn't mean there isn't a way for us to work together. And it's surprising how often that happens in the industry and surprising how often people refuse to do it. And I just, I, I was talking to a carrier yesterday who was refusing and I just asked them, do you have reinsurance? They said, well, of course we do. I said, well, guess what? You're working with competitors right now. And it's a, always been a part of your business because that reinsurer, even if they're not going head to head with you, which some people do reinsure to direct competitors or it's syndicated out that way, that reinsurer probably is taking some risk from some of your direct competitors, which means you adding to the pot is smoothing their losses, which makes their pricing better, which then helps your competitor get a better reinsurance rate. So in effect, you're supporting your competitors too. So we have to recognize this is actually an industry where we work with competitors every day. And maybe I have a slightly different view on that because I've been around the Lloyd space for a while and there's a lot of syndication and partnering up of different syndicates. But I think there's so much more you can do when you recognize that and it allows you to stay relevant to the customer, which frankly is the only thing that matters because this is about lifetime value. It's not about the value of a single policy. You don't work that way. I think the other point is that no organization has all the resources to be everything to uh, to be all things to all people or to all businesses. Yeah, you got to pick and choose what you're going to do really, really well, and then partner with those that that do it better than you. Is that lets you keep the customer relationship? Yeah, which is again like that's what matters. Someone said earlier today uh, in a conversation, you don't want to be a vendor; you want to be a partner. Which means it's not about that one sale; it's about how you're supporting them long term and working with them. And I think that's the way we need to, you know, it's, it's not a customer, it's a client because a customer is a transaction. You sold them something versus how are we building this relationship over years? Exactly. When you look at the eight startups again, what are the, some of the most interesting uses of technology that these startups have done that really stand out and are unique, Brian? You keep asking me to pick my favorite kid. <laughs> I didn't say pick your favorite. I just said this use is, of technology. That this really is why out. I only have one child, because then he's always my favorite. We don't have to get into that. Uh, honestly, they, they each actually have some really interesting uses of technology. I think Beam, it's hard not to point to Beam as one of those examples, because that's, that's the that. heart of it. Their CEO, Fro, is, he's a lot of fun. But it's three engineer buddies who saw a problem, and they're like, we can fix this. And came up with this smart toothbrush and they were like, this would be so helpful to insurance. What if you knew like how much people were brushing and you get them to brush more and what, let's go talk to dental insurers and help them. And the dental insurers were all like, no, dental's a money loser. We're just doing this because we have to, to sell these other benefits that we want to sell. So please leave, you know, like typical startup story would be. And that's when we realized like, you know, this idea doesn't have legs. Let's pack up shop and, you know, <laughs> go start, start something They're engineers, just go build something else. And instead crazily, they're like, what if we start our own dental insurer, which is like, who thinks that, but it was brilliant. And so like the data from the toothbrush, aside from having a hardware story, which is really tough, the data from the toothbrush is brilliant. And they were doing this before, you know, like the first Fitbit wasn't really a thing yet. 
So this is really early days in the kind of health IoT space. And I give them a lot of credit for that. And and as you see how it played out and how the data drives everything that they do, and then leads to being able to do more. And yet they grew 600% in three years. So wildly fast growth from a really small space. And going back to the point we made earlier, like that should mean their losses are terrible. But in fact, their losses are better than the industry. That's wild. And so that to me is such a blatant story of the value of really good data in underwriting. That story replicates itself in a number of them, like Neptune Flood asks you three questions. That's the magic number for all the startups is like, give me your name, your address, and some contact, like you know, email or phone number. That's basically all they ask. While they're doing that, they hit 150 external you know, third-party data sources to do all the underwriting they need to do. And I've gotten a quote from them. Jim talks about it taking two minutes. That's the, the founder. He's lying. It's like 40, 45 seconds. It's much faster. Better. But it, it's better, right? He's, he's lying in a good way. But it boggles my mind. 150 data sources coming back that fast. That's incredible. It's the power of cloud. It's the power of cloud. It's the power of APIs. It's the power of a mindset that doesn't start with, here's all the things we need to ask. How can we trim that down? They're like, what can we get externally? And how quickly can we get that? And why are we believing people when they tell us what their square footage is or whatever else, when we have a publicly available data source that is verified to pull that in? And this is in a space that took, on average, like four to six weeks to get a quote. So they're doing it in a matter of seconds where you had to pay for $300 to have someone come out to your house uh, and do an assessment to see if the National Flood Insurance Program would actually even quote you, let alone know what you're gonna pay for it. And they're doing this in seconds, it's wild. There's lots of really cool data stories in there, but I think Beam's kind of the obvious one because it, it's so transformative in a space that no one wanted to transform. Really interesting. After you got done you know, talking to these eight companies, your second book and, everything that's kind of going on in the industry, how do you see the next evolution of insurance and what we both call the future of insurance differently yeah. today than you did in your first book? So not a knock on the guy who wrote the first book. I think in some respects it was weak in the first one because I was so unsure. And to be fair, like the pandemic had just hit and I was in a little bit of the like, is all the funding going to dry up? I don't know what's going to happen. But I talked about there not being a winner between the insure tech and incumbent side. It's not about that. So in this one, I still think there isn't a winner. It's not like, oh, you know, State Farm's gonna be gone tomorrow because of Lemonade. Like, I don't think that's the story here. I think really it's about collaboration. I think that's huge. And so what, you know, Thimble and Hiscox did, I, I think you're gonna see more of that. But then I also think it's really about the potential with non-insurance collaboration. Since I was at Hiscox, probably there was talk about just wait till Amazon comes in and then we're all screwed. Maybe that'll happen. They've done something in India where they're partnering with an insurance brand there, ACO, to offer coverage. But they are playing in the insurance space here. They're just not an insurer or an MGA. They're a platform, they're distribution. And frankly, like that's what they do really well. They're tech and distribution. You know, when you start looking at players like Amazon or maybe some of the fintechs, what are they doing in insurance? And is that an opportunity for us or is that competition? What if SoFi wanted to do more in insurance than just effectively be a broker? You know, is that something that we should be mindful of? So I think there's kind of like another another source of disruption that isn't really playing out yet that will be interesting to watch. 
or it's a source of opportunity in partnerships, which has been the Amazon story so far. The disruptive things about writing the book was next and Amazon announced their prime business initiative. After I'd stopped, you know, I finished writing the case, I had to go back and adjust it. It's really interesting to me what's going to happen. But I did mention a couple of things in the fintech space that it's like, if you think about who this player is and what they know, like Carta, for example. So anyone in the startup world, you probably know Carta because that's where startup options and shares tend to live. They know about every shareholder, tons of startup who have their private shares um, all listed there. So they know about all the shareholders, the valuations, the transactions, all, like that is really valuable treasure trove of data for DNO underwriting that as someone who used to be responsible for a DNO team, like you can't get that information anywhere and you hope you can trust the companies in getting it, but it's really hard to get and it's hard to get accurately. So Carta knows all that and they know it all in real time. That's really interesting. Or you look at like Brex, who's doing credit cards and travel for, again, lots and lots of startups. What do they know about everything going on at the startup? Because it's all hitting the credit card. The financing of the startup, like that's also really interesting. So I think there's some players out there that are doing some neat things in particularly focused on the startup space. But what does that enable if they wanted to compete here? One of the interesting things, Brian, I'd love your, your perspective on it, given you kind of focused on those eight startups, but what about those that are coming in from outside the industry? Tesla's model, yeah, it's going to be embedded insurance, you know, to have insurance as a part of the purchase. But what's really interesting is all the value they're going to tie to it or what GM wants to do that. Yeah. In particular, Tesla being able to analyze a crash to be able to improve the, the vehicle to prevent a crash in the, in the future or to prevent the significant damage uh, loss, yeah. you know, that you have to have repair. Or on the other hand, you've got a SoFi who's setting up this network of partnerships, you know, with the Lemonades, Roots, and Ladder Lives of the world on top of other fintechs that they're going to own the customer relationship. Or now you've got Budweiser in Canada coming into insurance because they have this customer relationship and they want to kind of expand to it. Or a conversation I just had with somebody else just recently in on agriculture. Look at the manufacturers of the farm equipment, or you look at the people who have the seed companies, are they going to start getting into insurance? Because they're going to be able to really understand their products more to be able to identify risk and to be able to give them more information back. And, you know, the automotive companies from an IOT standpoint, I think there were some entities in the industry thought, oh, we can just get access to all that data. Well, I think the car companies got smart and said, no, we, we think we can monetize this data. And creating yeah. another business. I think that's going to be something that's going to be really interesting to watch. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And I think actually the monetization of that data, that's like the the here and now, because that's, you know, that's real and that's happening and there's value in that. But I think what's way more interesting, though it's much longer term and more uncertain, is what starts to happen from that as cars become more autonomous that personal insurance product starts to go away and it becomes a commercial liability commercial product commercial property like the the liability shifts it's more of an eno exposure for the software and yeah there's still some property that needs to be covered for the individual but then you move to a place like you mentioned gm their cruise origin pod people aren't going to own those those are going to be autonomous and you climb in and zip around san francisco or wherever so where does that liability sit? A hundred percent of that coverage is commercial. And at some point, I'm not going to say when it'll be, but it's not going to be 10 years from now. And it may be 80 years from now, or maybe a hundred years. I don't know. But um, at some point 
we won't own cars by and large. And the majority of the fleet of what moves us around will be some kind of shared autonomous thing. And like, God knows how long out this is, but if your whole business is personal auto, that's a problem. Yeah. You know, Ford can, you can pay to access into their connected car information data stream. So you can do different underwriting and you can adjust the claims differently because you knew exactly what was going on with the car and what the forces on it were and some really cool things you can bring into the equation. But what happens when Ford doesn't need you because there is no personal exposure and they still will always know more about it and know about all the input costs and be better positioned to replace and repair than you ever could, no matter how big of a carry you are. I think that's really interesting and curious. And I, I know it's, it's provocative and a lot of people, I think this is one of those bury your heads in the sand kind of moments. You'd be like, oh, please, you know, that's so many generations from now, if it ever happens, we don't need to worry about that. Well, you may not need to, because you may not be working anymore, but your company hopefully will need to. So what are you doing today to position yourself for this shifting that, that will happen at some point? And that's where I think there's some interesting things like CSAA with their Mobilitas division, trying to play in the mobility space and sort of be there along for the journey as it transitions. You know, Nationwide made a lot of announcements last summer about connected cars and how they, you know, they were the first to announce tapping into Ford and they're doing something with Honda and I think GM as well. Even if they're still doing that with a personal auto product, the fact that they're thinking about watching this and being there for it and being an early mover in it, I think that signals we recognize this is changing. It may be decades away, but as a mutual, you know, they're, they're going to, they're thinking longer term than a stock company might. So I think that's an interesting way to start to plant seeds in a market that is going to completely shift. And again, like some people might think I'm crazy for saying that, but just picture it out. Like using cars was crazy at some point. So what's the next ultimate state of transportation we end up in? At yeah. some point we will transition there. Couldn't agree more. And that's not when you figure out what to do about it, by the way, <laughs> it's way too late. You gotta anticipate it. So as we wrap this up, I always like to end with, if you could pick one word or phrase to describe the future of insurance, what would it be and why? So what would it be this year, Brian? I think this year, I said it before, it's embedded. And I think that's like what everyone is scrambling to figure out. How do we embed our solution into something else? Yep. I couldn't agree more. Well, Brian, it's been a great conversation. I love the second book. I'm going to look forward to book Thank number you. three. To, Denise, can I take a break? Something on the entrance from outside the industry. Maybe that's an area of focus. I'm I'm open to ideas, although I do need at least a couple of months off. But I'm open <laughs> to ideas, and uh, there there's going to have to be another one for yeah. sure, maybe two. Well, thanks, Brian, as always uh, for your insights. Really appreciate it, and look forward to future conversations. Thanks, Denise. Always great talking to you. That's a wrap for this week's episode of the Future of Insurance Industry Leaders Podcast. Be sure to sign up for our email list and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on our next episode. I'm Denise Garth, wishing you a happy podcasting.